Uncontrolled Airspace Information Alpha, 1353 Zulu. The members and guests of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily represent the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. Inform controller on initial contact that you have information alpha. Apparently, I don't know, this is like labor relations taken to the extreme here, all right? United Airlines is conducting an internal investigation after one of its captains diverted a flight to deplane a senior flight attendant who he argued with. A source familiar with the incident said the captain ordered the purser of the Boeing 767 to leave the aircraft because he or she was, quote, not respecting his authority. Well. Well. you know, first yeah. question. Yeah, James. Why is there still a purser? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's a good question. That's a very good question. What was that guy's name on Love Boat? It was like uh, Bingo or uh, Beagle or uh, the, the purser was uh, was uh, purser. On, what does a purser do? Hold purses? No, the purser is like in charge of the, like the buyer. I guess. I don't I don't know. I'm sure it's just some sort of anachronistic title that they still have uh, on the crew list, and it's just like they're all flight attendants. And You guys don't know what a purser does on an international flight? No, tell us. Uh, well, don't they, hold, on a, don't they hold valuables or something? They are kind of the head desk clerk, uh, a little bit concierge, a little bit chief flight attendant, uh if you got a real issue on the flight, you don't ask for the uh, on an international flight. You don't generally ask for uh, the flight attendant for your section. You ask to talk to the purser. What kind and of the issue flight attendants would I... work? Flight attendants work for the purser generally. Yeah. In the year two thousand nine, what kind of issue would I have on an international flight from Brazil to Chicago that someone with a title purser? could possibly resolve in flight. <laughs> well, apparently it isn't all that required because uh, because this particular purser pissed off the captain uh, and uh, and so the captain apparently opened the door and kicked him or her out and uh, well not quite. Fortunately, they were on the ramp at the time. Yeah, they, they, can they, handle, <laughs> they can handle the duty-free stuff that you want to buy. That's Well, there's that. Yeah. There. Um, but, so my question yeah, though clearly, is yeah. <laughs> Well, a commander should never find himself in that position. I think it shows a certain a certain big command. I, I agree. I agree. But here's my question. Have you guys ever had a passenger that you, in fact, or wanted to stop and let off? Now, now we're not going to go yes. in. We're not going to go into. We're not going to go into Jeb and Dave and the open window thing. No, right? no, 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 no. no. <laughs> No, which, by the way, I wasn't. I wasn't going to stop and let him off. Which by, I was just yeah. going to open the door and unbuckle the bell. Which, by the way, apparently annoys Jeb to the point where he actually put it in his magazine recently. I was reading one of the little. What do they call that thing at the end of an article? The little bio thing at the end of an article. I call it a bio, but yeah. I've, and I've done that before. It's it's yeah, not a matter. Has. It's it's been in the book before. Is it really? Uh, so you're just but, never going to forget this. You're never going to let it go. I got to have something cute and punchy to put in there every now and then. <laughs> It was it was his turn. <laughs> what, did, what did you? What did you? I didn't. I didn't have the benefit of reading that. 
Um, I didn't send it to you. I will send it to you when I get back to the office. Well, James, uh, this is—you've probably heard this story. This is the legendary Jeb Day yeah. story, where they're they're tooling along at wherever thousand feet, and and Jeb is kind of minding his business, flying the airplane, and not really paying attention to Dave. And Dave kind of quietly spies something out the window that he wants to take a picture of, and so Dave kind of just without even mentioning or warning or anything like that, just opens up the little vent window there on the side in order to take a picture, <laughs> which causes a huge ruckus in the cabin. All right, and uh, apparently. Nearly as much of a ruckus as after I closed the window. Yeah. Now, actually, he was very calm, he was actually yeah, very I, I, calm I, about it. He looked over at me and said, done now? <laughs> would you mind warning a guy next time? James, did you have a passenger you wanted to kick out? Oh, yes. What happened? Which, well, it, it coincided uh, with one of the greatest trips that I have, have had, and it's, it goes kind of in the of what you wish for, and I this doesn't identify the person. As I probably mentioned to you, I got to legally fly on Cuba for 10 days, and that's because I was the glorified chauffeur of someone who had UN permission rather than State Department exemption to fly there and actually do commerce there. And uh, this person turned out to be the worst traveling companion one could imagine. This person knew everything. They had opinion. This person lectures and lectured the on why they were so lucky to have Fidel. It was one awful, awful moment after another, although Cuba was just spectacular. People were wonderful. But the highlight was at the end, getting back to Havana for the flight back, dead battery it seemed, because nothing's happening. It's not working. Finally, we get a cart over there, and this person is going on about, well, it's probably the cellular. Well, if I was the captain, here's what I'd do. It's going <laughs> on and on and on. And uh, we finally get the, the plane cranked up. On the way, I look up, and I see that the cabin light is on, and I know that seeing this person this, on a previous flight, like waving their hands around, and, and, and I realized the person had turned on the cabin light during the day, and that's I hadn't rec- realized that. That's what drained the battery. Oh, I, <laughs> I looked up, and I said, you turned on the lights when you did. The person looks up, sees it, and says, that's a stupid way to design an airplane. <laughs> it's the airplane's <laughs> fault. That's right. Hey, I should point out to people, we've got a terrible Internet connection with James, apparently. And so, uh, although we're making out what you're saying, James, it sounds a little odd and it's a little choppy. But we understand. We hear you. So, uh, okay. we're, we're I'm just, hearing him fine, Jack. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure it's where little, it's sneaking in here. but a little choppy on my end. Yeah. So, so uh, we're just going to kind of bear with it and see how it goes. But uh, we, we ask everyone's patience here. Uh, Jeb, Dave, did you have a passenger you wanted to throw out? Never really had one I wanted to throw out. Um, I I had one that I I turned around and landed for uh, a few years back. I was I was giving a girlfriend a ride and her, and her young daughter, and her young daughter was sitting up in the front, and um, we took off and and we're we're headed west. We were, it was a nice calm day. We're going to maybe fly you know around the mountains or something like that. No real plan in mind, and she really started freaking out you know she says i would i i don't don't want to overemphasize that but uh, uh she's the like you know, I, or the mother the daughter the mother okay. was the mother was actually very disappointed um uh, but I, you know the, the the young young girl um just was not comfortable at all uh it was she was hmm. really um um 
uh, just almost distressed. And I said, you know, I don't want to do this. If she's not, if she's not comfortable, if she's not happy, uh, you know, this could be a, you know, 30, 40 minute ride here. If we, if we leave the airport area just for grins and if she's not comfortable, you know, we'll go back, we'll, we'll sit down, we'll talk about it. And which is what we did. And, um, uh, we went back and, and she didn't, she didn't want to get back in the airplane. Uh, as I say, her mother was very disappointed and talked to her and, and everything like that. But, um, um, you know, and that was the end of it. Um, I didn't, I wasn't going to pursue it and I wasn't going to pressure the young girl mm-hmm. into doing something sure. she didn't want to do. Sure. And, you know, obviously not a, not a real good place, uh, or time for, for someone to, um, um, be out of control. Hmm. So, end of discussion. David, how about you? Hmm. I've never had a passenger, but I've been with a couple of pilots that made me regret my decision to to fly with them. Okay. Uh-huh. Were, uh, they were flying or you were flying? Well, it was their aircraft. They were flying. Uh-huh. And, um, oh, yeah. I, I, now, I've been there, too, but go ahead. They <laughs> revealed, they each in their own little way, revealed a couple of... Uh, Habits, traits, quirks, insanities uh, that left me really, really worried about my safety and, and uh-huh. arrival at the uh-huh. at the far mm-hmm. end of the mm-hmm. trip, uh, and had me thinking, you know, midway through a two leg trip to Oshkosh one year, that I'm never fracking doing this again with this guy. <laughs> okay, I, I'm, I'm gonna. I'm, I'm even looking. I spent most of Oshkosh looking for an alternate alternate way home. Yeah. Uh, mm. And because of my schedule. Uh, now this is because they were annoying you, or because you feared for your safety. Feared for my safety. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, stupid pilot tricks. Uh, yeah, right. I was told by uh, a guy, he's a, a, a otherwise lovely young man, quite good at his business, uh, uh, moderately successful, does well. Uh, I thought a lot of him. Uh, we met up to saddle up at his aircraft and, and fly to Oshkosh because my airplane broke the day before. And he was going up the same time and coming back the last day. And that that fit, mm-hmm. and uh, we've got some uh, not marginal marginal. I mean, not seriously bad weather, but we got some patchy weather along the way. That let's say I would want to be kept track of. Yeah. And when I mm. asked if I could file a flight plan for him, he said, "Oh no, I don't do that. I don't want the government knowing where I go. They keep track of those things, you know." Oh, here we go. Yeah, all right. Here we go. Okay, now there's the first cold chill that went up and down my spine. That that black helicopter spooling up down the other end of the ramp ain't going the other direction. And 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 I uh, I kind of casually mentioned, oh yeah, with you know twelve thousand instrument flights a day and God knows how many other VFR flight plans a day, they spend a lot of time pouring over that data to connect the dots on who we're seeing and where we're going. And he goes, well, you don't have to be snide about it, but we know that they use that data. <laughs> okay. Well, see, now this uh, is where you made your mistake. You continued from this point on. So now we're, yeah, we're, we're, airplane. <laughs> we're, approaching a, we're approaching a very, very busy Bravo that's on the route. Uh, 
we've got our handy dandy monochromatic just the first GPS with special use airspace defined on it with little jagged pixel lines. And I'm looking at that and I'm saying, you know, buddy, uh, we're just about to penetrate the Bravo without permission or contact. I've got the frequency for this sector. If you'd like, I'll call them up and see if we just can't transit. But you don't want them knowing you're there, man. You don't want them and knowing. And he said, oh, no, we'll take care of that. And I'm looking at the airline traffic that's coming out to the north and turning to the west. And I know some of it's going to turn back to the south, uh, right directly into our line of flight. And he says, oh, no, I'll take care of this. And he reached over and turned off the transponder. <laughs> oh, okay. Now, now, Dave knows many years of working uh, covering the airline industry that that little box in those airliners tcas yep depends on transponder responses to function properly and he's just deprived all those airliners of a tcas response from our transponder with which not to run our asses down and from that point on i was sorry that i accepted the yeah. invitation yeah uh the trip yeah. home was only marginally less stressful uh, when we launched into marginal and twice had to deviate because of encroaching instrument weather. And when it got below 500 AGL, I'm saying, you know, there's hills out there. Oh, really? Well, we'll go back to this airport. Oh, really? You don't know what's out there? <laughs> okay, we get your oh, point. Man. We get your point. Well, I, I, I had a deal several years ago. Yeah, Jeb. Yeah, I had a deal several years ago. I was uh, riding right seat. I won't detail all the circumstances because it might somehow um, um, detail who the uh, guy in the left seat was. But we were shooting. Uh, uh, we were ferrying the airplane uh, as a Skyhawk, and I was in the right seat. He's in the left seat. And we get to uh, our destination, and it's socked in, so we're, we're shooting an approach. And, um, and this particular approach, start, it's a VOR approach, and this particular approach starts out over the VOR, and uh, you descend you know, on a straight line towards the, towards the runway. Well, he left the, the holding pattern, and um, basically the, the needles on both VORs were pegged opposite sides. Didn't have a freaking clue where the final approach course was. And <laughs> because he's a little <clears throat> a little senior to me, um, and I was a, <clears throat> a lot younger at the time, I uh, didn't say anything. I, you know, I said, hey, you know, you, you need to correct a little bit maybe. And uh, he, he started correcting and, you know, kept his descent going. And it didn't really matter how much he corrected. He wasn't going to find the final approach course. Mm -hmm. But he kept, he kept the descent going. And the, the needles are still pegged. And I'm by this time I'm along for the ride, okay. And I I just kind of gave up and I started staring through the windshield, expecting a pine tree to come through at any moment now. <laughs> yeah. And he finally got a clue, and said, "I can't do this. You need to take it." Whoa! And I'm like, "Oh great! I, here I am in the right seat." <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I I gladly took it over, called a missed approach, started climbing. Made a right turn back to the VOR, um, did a lap in the holding pattern, got cleared for the for another approach, nailed the final approach course, 
uh, descended back down to the MDA, um, broke out, boom, there's the airport. He says, okay, thanks, I've got it now. <laughs> I tell you, dude. <laughs> and you said, I'm walking flew, home. I never flew with him again. Either. Yeah, I bet. You I don't bet. got it until I say you've got it. <laughs> Oh uh, well, hey, welcome, folks. To uh, with that note, on that note, name for Jeb, we can call him Peg. <laughs> welcome, folks, to episode 149 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. We're recording this episode on Thursday evening, August 13th, 2009, and uh, joining me here in the virtual hangar are uh, three very patient people. It turns out. Uh, uh, because they didn't get out in flight, which I might have. Here, first, uh, Jeb Burnside's out there talking to us from uh, Sarasota, Florida. Hi, Jeb. How you doing? I'm fine, Jack. How about yourself? I'm good. I'm good. Did you buy a seaplane yet? I have not bought a seaplane yet, uh, although it's rained enough this afternoon that uh, it might be a good idea. It might be a good investment. Um, still, you know, kind of kind of looking around. Right now, I'm still looking looking my wounds from from Oshkosh. Um, you know, only back in a week and a half or so here now, starting to starting to get back on the on the front side of the curve for a change, as far as workload and and uh, demand on my uh, limited bandwidth. So, uh, mm-hmm. uh, looking at looking at seaplanes uh, in any shape or form right now isn't uh, isn't my highest priority. Yeah, every every time now I see a seaplane or an amphib of some sort, I go. Jeb can fly hey. that. <laughs> Jeb, is Jeb here? I don't see him. Or, or, uh, where is he? I, 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 where I, I, where is he for, when you really need I'm him? I'm watching for the video where AvWeb t- checks out water-flying tie-down anchors. <laughs> <laughs> and also here in the hangar is Dave Higdon, who's talking to us from Wichita, Kansas. Hi, David. Good evening, everybody. All the aviators in the air, all the ships at sea, and Jack, Jeb, and James. So what are you up to these days, David? How's life in oh, Wichita? Uh, life in Wichita has been kind of like Jeb's life. Uh, I am one project away from finally being caught up with the two weeks that Oshkosh takes out of my re- regular work routine. Uh, really looking forward to it. Uh, that will end tomorrow. Uh have promised myself at least one whole day off this weekend. And... Uh, I'm trying to pin down a buddy of mine to see if he can uh, start working on my uh, tailwheel endorsement with me. Oh, cool. Mm. Very cool. Where are you going to do that? What airport? Uh, More than likely, uh, one of the larger, more uh, uh, high-traffic international airports in Wichita, uh, Dead Cow. Oh, okay. (laughs) I was thinking, he's going to do his tailwheel at an international airport, and Dave would do that, too, wouldn't he? Uh, Do you know what airplane you're going to do it in? Uh, Yeah, it's a a Champ. Mm, Oh, cool. I would really love to fly a Champ. That would be a lot of fun, I think. Yeah, that should be fun. I've I've got some stick time in them, and... uh, to be honest, it it just doesn't feel a whole hell of a lot different than uh, than some of the uh, uh, quote unquote two place ultralight that were tail wheel that uh, I used to fly regularly, mm-hmm. and some of the uh, uh, some of the uh, uh, two place light experimental category. They'd be light sport, you know, uh, today. Uh, you know, weight and horsepower uh, they're about the same. And uh, I don't expect it to be uh, a big issue, but I don't have the endorsement. All those hours I put in the other one were always 
with somebody or with a nod and a wink and yeah right uh so I, it's like my float plane time uh i've got a lot of hours uh doing pilot reports in amphibs and float equipped airplanes but i've never managed to combine one of those with a demo pilot that was a cfi who could give me the mm-hmm. checkout and sign me off on the bloody thing so yeah yeah well, that sounds like cool. You're going to have to report back and tell us how that goes. I, I, uh, I will tell you how that goes when it goes. When it goes. And also joining us in the uh, virtual hangar this week is James Winbrandt, who's talking to us from the Big Apple, New York City. Hey, James, how you doing? We've moved James Hi. over to a regular telephone now because his internet connect or something. I'm not sure if it's his internet connection or my internet connection or somewhere along the line the internet was letting us down. So uh, Yes, so I'm talking to you from 25 years ago. Yeah, that's right. Old technology that, <laughs> yeah, that is. The, the, the NSA hasn't updated their machinery. Right. Uh, that's what a it is. A landline. That's right. That's what it is. How quaint. Yeah. So how are you doing, James? What are you up to these days? Doing great. Well, uh, Jeb was talking about Oshkosh, uh, and I've just been back uh, a few days from the whole soiree, and uh, I just had a great time there this year. We got to spend some time together, and... You know, over the winter with the problems with me having my plane not in service, it's just great getting up and flying somewhere and being surrounded by airplanes and airplane people and then doing a little more airplane viewing after on the way home. So Mm -hmm. I feel great about it. That's great. That's great. And I am Jack Hodgson. I'm talking to you from uh, the home office in Dover, New Hampshire. And uh, so uh, UCAP headquarters. I was at the airport this morning. Uh, that's where I saw Jeb's seaplane. I saw, I think it was a Lake Amphibian um, mm-hmm. on the on the ramp at Sanford, and uh, and I was looking around for Jeb, but he wasn't there. Let me down. Uh, but uh, I, I really did see this airplane. Go, oh, Jeb. Jeb can fly that airplane. Um, I wanted to go flying this morning, wasn't able to because there was no airplanes available. But uh, I've sp- oh, I'm probably. scheduled tomorrow morning to uh, to extend my 172 checkout so that I can now rent the uh, SPs that they have. Uh, so, now, they so were not available because they were all in use. Yeah, they're very very busy. I'm 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 happy for them. It's a little bit, yeah. bit of a drag for me, but uh, I'm really glad that they're that busy. Um, mm-hmm. So. Uh, the the deal is that they've got three 172s. One is an M model, and two of them are SP models. And the M model is the one I got checked out in a few months back. And uh, the there's a sort of additional system stuff that they want to run run you through uh, before you fly is, the are, SPs. Are the SPs uh, G1000? No, they're not glass. It has I, it has something to do with engine, something like that, or systems. It's like how you yeah, start them up. Yeah, it's 180 horsepower yeah. um, fuel injected. Yeah, that's what I it is. These are newer SPs. Yeah. Well, obviously they're yeah, of course they're newer SPs. Yeah. Um, so I think they're still fixed pit, but it's fuel injected and and uh, that's really the only trick. I'm Couple, pretty sure they're you know, yeah, I'm pretty sure they are fixed pit pitch and uh, yeah, twenty more horsepower and you know they'll get up and go a little bit better. But, yeah, because I was talking to him this morning um, and he said that in fact the the just extending to get the SP you know it's a rental checkout to get that checkout um, might not even require flying. Uh, so uh, it's yeah, just it's, it's just kind of go over the systems and. Re- review the checklists and the procedures and whatnot. So I'm going to do that tomorrow. There's no car heat knob. That's the biggest difference. Oh, really? Well, in the M model Skyhawk, there is a car heat knob. There. No, there is there. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. 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 That was, it was finally, I was flying with the M172. I was finally flying an airplane that I was familiar with again. That's like for mm-hmm. the past six months, I've been flying oh, yeah, all these uh, different uh, airplanes. And, that's uh, like a pair of old underwear. Yeah, exactly. It's like, <laughs> hey, I know how to fly this airplane. Oh, this is man. Airplane. <laughs> what? <laughs> 
I'm passing. What? I'm going to I'm going to let that one slide. <laughs> okay. Thank you. We'd appreciate that. So James, uh since you since we all came back or since we left Oshkosh, you've been a busy guy. Uh you've been been zooming around here and there and and doing all yeah. kinds of interesting aviation things. Um uh, you know, tell us about some of these things. What, what have you well, been up to? Well, I also have to. I had a maritime adventure that I I shared with Dave Higdon and our uh, good friend of the show Rick Reynolds as well. That's right, Dave. Leaving Oshkosh. Dave did mention that uh, in the last episode. He talked about how when Dave's flight got uh, delayed, he, uh, he right. jumped ship from the airport and and went on board uh, Rick's boat there, and you guys went cruising up and down the whatever river body of water it was. Sounds like sounds great. Well, yeah. it was the Wolf River. river. Was, Wolf yes, River. Fox, Fox yeah. River. No, this was the Wolf no. River. The Wolf. They have a wolf and a fox river? Apparently. Uh-huh. Apparently. Yeah. And who knows that's, what other creature rivers are. I was going to say, that's disconcerting. Yeah. yeah. But aviation stuff. Uh, then, you, went, you went to American he, Champion? What happened out he, there? Yeah. Uh, well, I went over to American Champion to uh, see the updated Scout with their glass panel. Uh and also to see their water bomber. You know, they have converted a scout into a water bomber that they uh, hope to have certified by the end of the year. It will hold a, a hundred gallons of water mixed with some sort of retardant. That's uh, close to 800 pounds of, of water. And they're taking a, a very innovative approach to aerial firefighting. Whereas uh, a, a helicopter would cost probably at least 1500 an hour to operate and it has to go to a lake to fill up or somewhere like that and has to wait till the fire gets to a certain size to make it worth it going after, they propose having like a fleet of five or ten of these that a state can buy, operate each for $150 an hour, get them, use a, a nearby highway, where they can attack a fire right when it gets started because they see them, but they just can't respond to them because things are too far away, and kaboom, Mm -hmm. bombard them. They can send each of these out seven or eight flights an hour from right nearby, close off a section of road, and that would be tremendously beneficial, cut down on the cost of firefighting, cut down on the cost of of, uh, not just the, the loss of timber, but on the actual strategic aerial component of it so they uh wanted to show it to me and do a demonstration and uh clearly you know elvis as we saw at oshkosh certainly has its place in fighting fires but this seems to be another way of tackling blazes that states uh spend so much money fighting these days i I wouldn't have thought that only 100 gallons of water would be very effective but apparently it is also, they are going to be equipped with EVS. So, if another thing they can then other as opposed to other fixed wing uh, aerial water bombers, they are slower and they can actually look down and see through the smoke. And again, since they're going to hit them before they get big, mm-hmm. uh, they have they can in fact that uh, hundred gallons. Uh, with five or ten planes in a constant water brigade is going to have an impact. Yeah, yeah. sounds Makes cool. Makes sense. Yeah, hmm. yeah. So, and but then the regular scout. Oh, so, did you fly the water bar? Does this actually exist? Or are they working on it? No, it exists. It's uh, one person, so I didn't fly it. They died, they demonstrated it. Came and did a water dump uh, down the runway there in Rochester, uh, Wisconsin, where American Champion is built. And I also wanted to see the factory and how 
they turned this uh, into a success story since uh, Jerry Malhoff and uh, his son is the DER kind of resurrected this company, Jerry mm-hmm. bought it back in 1990. And, you know, they're producing scouts, decathlons, Cetabrias, uh high country explorers. And they were had reported they had uh, excellent interest at Oshkosh, and it was great to drop in and see how they are putting them together. Yeah, sounds cool. Did you? So did you fly the Scout? I always thought the Scout yes, was a I cool flew airplane. The Scout. What was that like? Uh, Have you ever flown that before? I have. I got to fly a, a Scout around the Badlands of North Dakota Ooh. once, uh, doing uh, aerial wildlife survey for the Game and Fish Department. Although you talk about there. having no place to land, that, that, I wouldn't imagine in the Badlands is an awful lot of places to set down an airplane. Oh, you can land on top of big buttes there. There's really? Like, and this, what's that? I, I, my only experience with the Badlands is driving through in a car, and it seems very scraggy, very, you know, kind of up and down, lots of little, you know, jaggedy peaks. And uh, so Definitely, there are places, yeah. Just speaks to the utility of the Scout. Yeah. So okay. I got to fly it around there. And then another time, uh, the state actually wanted to get some publicity for the Lewis and Clark Trail at the uh, Bicentennial. And so uh, Paul Anderson, my friend who I flew with in the Fish and Game Department, was released for us to fly along the Lewis and Clark Trail area in North Dakota for a few days. So I got to fly it then as well. And they're extremely rugged, extremely high-performing bush planes. And uh, not a whole lot of people know them that much because American Champion really doesn't advertise. They're not mass producers but they make a, an excellent product, and the marketplace responds to it, and that's why they've been successful in this quiet way. Cool. Hmm. Cool. So, and what was the factory like? Are they turning out airplanes even now, or are they slowed down? Or They have slowed down. They have had to furlough some workers, and in the wake of Oshkosh, they are hopeful that they're going to be recalling them. Uh, so they have uh, three large hangar buildings where the manufacturing is done. They have uh, modern equipment. They've got huge presses. They've got a, anything that you would expect to find in a, a Cessna or Piper factory. Hmm. And uh, great quality control. Uh, the, the fit and finish of the products is great. It, clearly, everybody is very committed to creating great airplanes. So now from the Scout, you moved to a, sort of another end of the spectrum, or a, a spectrum. Uh, you went to something called Gauntlet Warbirds, is that correct? Yes, I did. Now, uh, what, what is Gauntlet, Gauntlet Warbirds? Warbirds in Aurora, Illinois, which is about, I guess, uh, 50 miles west of downtown Chicago. Uh, it is, the chief pilot there is Greg Morris, and I actually met him at the very end of uh, Air Venture 08, and uh, uh-huh. I saw some uh, notice about the facility they had there, and I uh, got together with them and, and learned a little bit about it. And this time, uh, after Oshkosh, I was able to stop in and see the facilities and, and uh, check out some of their airplanes. They've got a wonderful program. Now, what do they do they, there? Well, they are set up so that they can take anyone from private pilot, newly minted private pilot, transition them all the way up to flying jet warbirds. Yeah, there and we go. 
you don't have to go that whole route, but they start you out with Cetabria and Decathlon to get you tailwheel endorsed. There's nowhere else in Chicago, believe it or not, to get a tailwheel endorsement. There used to be a place here, a place there, nowhere else. So they start you off with a tailwheel endorsement. Go into an aerobatics program. From there, transition you into the extra 300 for high-performance airbags, from there into their beautiful T6, well, actually, excuse me, it's an SNJ, where you're also doing aerobatics and getting the feel of getting comfortable with a 5,000-pound tail dragger. Mm-hmm. From there into the L29, which is uh, the Checkmate jet, and then into the more modern and much sexier-looking L39. Uh, another Czech jet fighter, which was used by every Eastern Bloc nation except Poland to train their uh, jet fighter pilots. Now, did you get to fly that? Yes, I did. I got to fly that twice, oh, and that man. was quite a thrill. I'm going to start hanging out with you more. <laughs> I know, <also>. really. <laughs> Forget these seaplanes, man. Come on. Yeah. We're, we're flying jet warbirds. All right. <laughs> what was it like flying the L-39? Have you flown something like that before? Uh, the closest thing I'd uh, flown, I got to fly uh, a BD-10 once, if you recall the BD-10. Yes, I do, but, I, okay, go ahead. BD-5 so, or BD-10? The BD-10. Oh, the oh, okay, never mind, Scrat, you know, rewind. Yeah. yeah. The BD-10 was a one-seat little jet, right? Two seats. Oh, two seats. BD-5, oh, it was two, okay. This was, the, was this the James Bond airplane, or...? No, that's no, the no, BD-5. No, no. That's the 5. That's the propeller version. Okay. Uh, BD-10 oh, little was micro uh, kind of an FA-18 clone. Exactly. Oh, oh, oh that one. Oh, yeah, the 10. I remember the 10. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, with the twin tails, very sexy, very, very responsive and fast. What became of that airplane? Well, the... It, <laughs> it was a Jim Beatty airplane. That's certified... enough said, right? Ah. <laughs> No, it was uh, this company, Peregrine, took it over with the hopes of certifying it. Unfortunately, uh, a, a couple of flights came to a very bad end, and that was sort of the end of the program. Uh, okay. So uh, getting back to Gauntlet, uh, yes. what was the L-39 like? So the L-39, uh, very responsive and firm feel, and they just, I don't have a whole lot of Warbird experience or jet experience, light jets like that, that are so responsive, but it's it's uh, kind of a different animal than a propeller, piston propeller aircraft. You point it in sort of any direction, and the throttle obviously responds, not immediately spools up, but there are reserves of power there if you're, you're not at full power. Also, though, it's uh, interesting how fast the power does back off. If, if you're not at near... 100% power, if you back to 90, suddenly it's only like half as fast. It's not like 90% as fast. Uh, so huh. Why, why is that? Is, is that some sort of logarithmic power thing, or is it very draggy, or why is that? It, no, that is just the nature of, uh, well, this particular jet engine. So I guess it has to do partly with the particular jet engine, but uh, I'm not a uh, turbine expert, but that's just the nature of the beast. Hmm. If you don't have it up near full power, it is, it's not uh, a straight line increase. It's okay. If you're going to own a jet, you, you want to be at full power all the time anyways. So, uh, well, yes, there's, exactly. There's a, there's a considerable difference in how uh, turbofan and turbojet engines respond to throttle movements compared to what we're used to in piston engine uh, mm-hmm. cars and, and aircraft. 
uh, throttle movements with piston aircraft and piston automobiles is almost immediate. I mean, there's mm-hmm. almost no perceptible lag time. Uh, the uh, movement of the throttle on a turbine engine uh, takes sometimes two or three seconds, and it's better than it used to be. Uh, a friend of mine that flew F-86s in uh, Korea said that uh, you know one of the complications of air-to-air combat for them was needing to think about six seconds ahead of power changes. Mm-hmm. Because that's how much lag there was between moving the throttle and the engine actually responding to the throttle movement. Hmm. Okay. So, uh, you know, it's, it, it's better than it used to be, but it's still not that instantaneous thrust delivery mm-hmm. that you get when you step on the gas in a car or move the throttle on an airplane. Which is why in the pattern and things, they prefer to dirty the airplane up and leave the power high. So if right. they need that power, they can just get rid of that drag. But uh, we did a lot of aerobatics. Part of the part of it was we were uh, also getting some air to airs in from the extra 300. Uh, uh, Jim Lawrence, photographer, noted photographer Jim Lawrence, was uh, crammed in the back there, and so we were doing some aerobatics around him. And of course, there's quite a bit of speed differential, and we're doing rollovers uh, over their canopy and and such. And then to because we were going so much faster to kind of not lose them, uh, Greg was then pulling up and we were doing dynamic climbs of seven to 8,000 feet per minute and about four Gs, he was saying. So my, my gyro is getting pretty scrambled as well. And, <laughs> and then we go up to sort of look down and it was very much like, you know, this dog face. Like, where are, where is he? And we're in communication. I'm over by X Lake and whatnot. And we're up there hanging up there and there he is. And <laughs> sort of dive down on him. So it was quite exhilarating and uh, just instantaneous response. And uh, the following morning, we went out for some more pictures, and we actually went out in by the lakefront of Chicago. And fortunately, they were going to be having their air show. I'm not sure if it was the Blue Angels or uh, or the Thunderbirds in a few days, and people were expecting that because otherwise, you know, we're just flying along there and having to do some 360s for photo work, but suddenly pointed this jet fighter at downtown, so pe- people probably figured, oh, they're just getting ready for the air show. That that's a re- I'm, that's I'm a sure Mayor, Mayor Daly appreciated this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. David, what were you going to say? That's a spectacular setting. Oh, morning, yeah, for a morning photo shoot. Yeah, just yeah. just unbelievable when the light, you know, when it's early and the light's mm-hmm. right, and, you know, and it paints those buildings and 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 the warm glow. Yeah. Uh, yeah, David, I've seen some pictures in your portfolio that are really stunning uh, with that backdrop. And uh, uh, I, I ran out of film on that shoot, uh-huh. uh, and it just broke my heart. I was freezing my nanas off. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was a, a, another part of that tableau that broke my heart, and that's the, the first sight I've really gotten of the former Megs. Oh, yeah. Right, right. Oh, sure. That's a heartbreaker. Yep, yeah. yep. When we yep. did When we did our – I did a photo – job for Saab aircraft leasing a number of years ago. It's the, the, the pictures that Jack was referencing. Uh, Chicago Express Airlines had just received their first Saab 340 turboprops. And their parent, uh, American Transair, uh, wanted photos of the Chicago 
skyline with their airplane in it for their advertising and promotion. And the deal between Saab Aircraft Leasing and the uh, customer was that uh, Saab Aircraft Leasing would take care of acquiring the photos and uh, they'd be available for both parties to use. And so it took two trips to Chicago before we were able to pull this off. We got weathered out of the first one. Mm. But bless their pee picking hearts, after ignoring all of my instructions about platform aircraft and uh, uh, the necessity of a particular kind of airplane to be able to shoot with this airliner, this 35-seat airliner, the customer got me the right airplane and the right pilot for the trip to Chicago. We'd done one earlier out of Manassas with Colgan Airways. When everybody went, oh, well, they've got a Bonanza, and that'll be as good as a Baron. And, uh, mm. you know, we don't really need to worry about the pilot. Our pilots are all good. And, uh, you know, in, in O-Dark 30, yeah, okay, that's fine. But first we want you to take shots of the senator and shots of our first female captain and shots of our first male flight attendant. And by the time we launched, we'd screwed the pooch for the real mission, which was shooting mm. the airplane, flying the Potomac with the U.S. <laughs> Capitol and the White House and Washington National Airport in the background. So that pooch is getting a workout tonight. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and, and that was that was a pre nine one one pooch. And what happened is, by the time we got to do, to actually run the, the 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 line on that particular background, uh, it was three hours late. The wind had come up. Uh, if I hadn't been tethered, I'd have been ejected. Uh, and because of the density of the traffic by that time of day, uh, the uh, uh, nice folks that owned that airspace there, they call that National Airport, Yeah, they would only accommodate one run. Oh, well. So oh, he got well. one pass. When we went to Chicago, everything was different. Right airplane, yeah. right kind of pilot. They matched me up with a military, uh, a retired military uh, uh, aviator. Uh, the pilot flying for Chicago Express was retired Royal Air Force and an ex-Red Arrows pilot. Jeez. Mm. And he's my 340 guy. Mm. Uh, uh. Uh, he could put that airplane up in spots for us like you wouldn't believe. We were still shooting film in those days. I brought along 52 rolls of film thinking I'd shoot 30. Mm -hmm. I ran out of film. Yeah, well. Mm. Wow. Yeah, well. And it produced some of the most breathtaking stuff. And the real break for us was that when I landed in Chicago uh, at, at Midway the night before, uh, it was pouring down cold, gray overcast, but the progs were for it to blow out about 5 a.m., mm -hmm. and they only missed it by about 20 minutes. Hmm. Good, good. So we yeah. briefed while it was raining, and we launched and got out over the lake just in time for the sun to come up, and... I could have gone on for the, for days doing that. Yeah, mm. they're great, great pictures, great pictures. James, um, so if that's not enough, and, and uh, we are kind of getting, <laughs> we need to move along here. But uh, it, it's not it's not as sexy as water bombers and and jet warbirds. But you also visited uh, Black Hawk King Air, or what, well, what's it I called? Got to, you, I, I got to fly one of their uh, King Air two hundred conversions on Monday, uh -huh. and. Uh, you know, this is a whole new kind of performance arena that has been made possible by some of these aftermarket conversions. Uh, Blackhawk started doing conquests. They then introduced 
an upgrade for the C90 King Air, and now they have these upgrades for uh, the 200 and B200 series. And uh, Adam Winkler, who uh, flies this aircraft for four gentlemen who are the co-owners, Adam is also the chief pilot there at uh, Gateway Aviation, the flight school out at Queen City Municipal Airport in Allentown, uh, Kilo Lima X-Ray X-Ray, I believe, uh, was kind enough to secure permission for me to try this out. And... You know, with the old version, the Dash 41 and Dash 42 of those aircraft, they really kind of lumbered uh, to, to get up to altitudes where the more modern uh, King Airs uh, 200s, uh, like the 200 GTR. So uh, they would only he could only get up to 27,000 before, and he'd be climbing at maybe 700 feet per minute near gross. Uh, we we're able to get a clear direct, which itself is pretty unusual given the traffic going overhead into Philadelphia, New York. We got a unrestricted climb uh, up to 28,000. We did have to stop at 27,000 brief, very briefly, but still 16 minutes later, we're at uh, 28,000 feet hmm. and mm-hmm. uh, zooming along there at better than 300 knots, which is a, a significant performance increase for this aircraft. The Conversion, they were looking at doing an overhaul. Their engines, original 13,000 hours, 4,100 since overhaul, it's going to be about 900,000. That's just about what it costs a little more for the conversion. Wow, okay. Well, that's great. They do do some partnership work with Raysbeck Engineering out in in Seattle uh, to package up some of Raysbeck's King Air mods with the Blackhawk mod engine upgrades. And apparently the packages are just huge on delivering you know better climb better short field performance lower specific fuel consumption at mm-hmm. cruise. uh and, you know just goes all the way across the board yeah and now they're also partnering on road shows with uh blr that does winglets yep oh, yeah. and with garmin What's yeah. that? to do the to do the g1000 conversion Yes, with Garmin. So it's like, okay, you can, for a fraction of the cost, you can have a a plane that essentially performs and has all the avionics of a 200 GT. Well, that's cool. Maybe we should look into getting one of these upgrades for the uh, for the UCAP King Air. And, oh, for, uh, yeah, I was going to say. Um, um, does that you mean know? we've given up on the UCAP A380? No, no, well, <laughs> no, no. They they they'll both fit in the hangar. It's okay. I was I, I was so counting on moving into the aft upper deck of the. Game. <laughs> actually, no. actually, the the UCAP fleet will hip fit into the hip pocket right now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, <laughs> you know, bringing up the 380, and I know we've talked about that that landing. Yeah. But uh, Greg Morris out at Gauntlet Air, uh, Gauntlet Warbird said that, like I think he mentioned, the F-16 really can't land. It has to land without correcting the crab because the computers don't understand. If you try to, you know, do a cross control and and have one wheel on and the, the wing bent into the wind, have you hmm. heard such a thing? This is an F-16, you're saying? And well, that I'm, the I'm and that the landing right system on an Airbus would be similar. The computer control could not handle. Well, how we would land a, a piston aircraft, one, you know, wing low, I, one tire I, in. Inter- interesting segue, but one of the things on the list tonight is a YouTube video of uh, an A380, uh, presumably uh, a developmental version or a developmental uh, airframe. It's the same uh, airplane we saw at Oshkosh. Uh, 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 well, 
I was going to say, I, I didn't want to go that far, but it probably is, performing a, a very well-executed crosswind landing, uh, presumably stiffer than the one at Oshkosh. Yeah. But landing in a level attitude. Yeah. And, no, and no, you know, more no or less aligned the with the... Yeah, more or less aligned with the direction of of flight or direction of roll too. Yeah, which was which was sorely missing at Oshkosh. Yeah, so actually, the computer on those does understand when you put in when you input stick and rudder to make it crab and then straighten it out. The computer does understand those controls. Well, I think what James was saying is that it doesn't understand the wing low version uh, technique. Is that what you're saying, James? You don't need to do the wing low thing. It's something I don't. I didn't understand completely the concept of why it couldn't, but the suggestion was that because the computer controls, it would not respond properly if you tried to put it on one wheel with the cross controls as we are taught to do after we straighten out a crab. Well, I don't respond correctly if someone tries to, to put me on one wheel either. Um, okay, uh, but, but I we, have old, I have an older version of the software. We really uh, have to move along here. We're just never, ever. <laughs> well, we've got a bit. We've We're got having this, way too much fun. We've here. got this this demo video of the developmental airplane that Airbus threw for flight instruction. Yeah, I saw that. I, I'm fairly certain that it's the same aircraft that came to Oshkosh. Uh, nonetheless, even if it's not, these are, these are flight test videos, and you can see very clearly that they come down in a crab. They straighten it out with the center line just before touchdown. And just as they touch down, the wingtips on that great big heavy airplane go a little bit negative. Yep. Just because they unload, mm-hmm. not because they hit hard. Right. Just right. because the, the lift goes away, the wings unload. And when you've got those are really freaking heavy wings out there. Well, you know, when I saw that video, that's not, I have to tell you, that's not what I saw. I saw it flying straight and level, but sort of compensating for the side wind, pushing it toward the runway because it was lined up, it seemed like facing the camera, but it was just straight and level moving sideways as it advanced. And it seemed to just sort of, as it came down, it just sort of planned out so it was on the runway at the right time. Yeah, in the vid- in the uh, in the crosswind video that we we were talking yeah. about. Yeah, you yeah, you can definitely see the crosswind in this video when it takes back off, because the starboard wing lifts uh, well ahead of the port wing on takeoff, and mm-hmm. the starboard gear trucks come off the ground before. Yeah, uh, but in these landing shots, these guys are getting it straight with the runway. The main trucks are touching down, and the nose wheels touching down in line. Yeah. Uh, Mm-hmm. And then you which, get a big really... unloading on the wings, and they are carrying so much weight that when they unload, they flex past neutral to a little bit negative, and then they return. Uh, uh, question. Yeah. When a plane stops flying, has the wing lost all lift, or is there a lift that makes it lighter until it stops? It, it's not lost all lift. It's still generating lift. Um from touchdown speed down to uh, taxi speed. Mm-hmm. But because it's no longer supporting the airplane, mm-hmm. uh, basically what's happening is, is uh, you know, I've seen this, you know, from, from coach on a 7-4. You start rolling down the runway and, and you kind of look at the wingtips and, okay, they're, they're you know, more or less uh, uh, stable. 
and the faster the airplane gets towards rotation, uh, the wingtips start coming up. Yeah. And a heavily loaded 7-4, uh, the, the wings are almost going to be in a constant curve um, <laughs> with the tips the highest point of the wing uh, as it takes off. We're seeing the same thing here, but in reverse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and a, a loaded 747, when it takes off, uh, those wings from their parked from their static position to the fully loaded position flex about seven or eight feet. I was going to yeah. say about mm-hmm. ten, actually. Uh, it may be more uh, than that. It may, it may be more than that, but they they clearly, I mean, they're designed to do that. And, and one and of the, the wings things on the three eighty are designed the same way. And one of the things that makes it really apparent that the wings aren't at their normal load carrying position when a four seven four hundred's on the ground is the angle of the winglets. Mm-hmm. It actually tilted out past vertical. Mm. But when they're in flight, they're just about perfectly vertical. That's how much the wings flex upward and those tips straighten out. And the, the load is not distributed uh, evenly across the span of those wings. So uh, you, you, get a little, you, you get a little unloading there. Uh, and if you watch the 747, uh, do crosswind landings and come in and, and, and drop in like this, you'd see them unload pretty much the same way. Yeah, yeah. Well, James, so uh, I'm, I'm envious of all the airplanes you got to fly just in the past week and a half. And uh, I, I used to I used to say Tupper was my hero because he was out flying all day. <laughs> but, but, you know, I'm going to start following you around. And, well, yeah, if I'm in you know. Tupper's exalted company, I'm pretty, uh, thank you. I'm very flattered. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, so well, that's, t- Tupper's a pro, but you're getting there, James. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Working on it. That's right. The rest of us are just rank amateurs. Yeah. A couple of uh, a couple of interesting uh, aviation stories over the past week. One uh, one quite tragic and and very sad, and and the other perhaps a bit troubling. Um, the troubling one first. Um, we there's been some confusion over the past months about the whole question of of when you're a sport pilot and you're doing sport pilot training. Um, uh. How much of this time, how much of your logged sport uh, LSA time, sport pilot time, can be applied towards uh, getting a full blown private pilot certificate? And um, and there's been you know, kind of people expressing different ideas of how this was going to work, um, ranging from one extreme of everything counts to another extreme of almost nothing counts. The FAA finally came out with an official interpretation of uh, of the rules um, over the past, where at least we saw it over the last week. And uh, and although it says most much of it does apply, there are some gutches here. And uh, and we heard Dave gasp. Uh, David, why did you gasp? Well. The uh, the interpretation that came out of the Office of the Legal Counsel of the Federal Aviation Administration basically said that a sport pilot instructor is a lesser creature than a, a uh, private pilot CFI, regular CFI. Well, we all knew that uh, in terms of the authority they have and the ratings that they're allowed to uh, train for. That said, the skills area that the FAA says the sport pilot instructor cannot, or the sport pilot rating cannot have count toward a private pilot rating, are the exact same skill sets that a CFI teaches for the private pilot rating. There's not an iota difference in them. Yeah. It's basic airmanship, basic rules of the sky, 
uh, you know, up to the point of solo. And a sport pilot flying solo in a two-seater is maybe flying an aircraft with a lesser certification standard to meet. and may have won his ticket at a lower bar than a private pilot. But he's still flying and carrying passengers in the same airspace, using the same air and the same rules of the road. Yeah. So why this interpretation came out, to me, is just pure bureaucrat uh, protection act in action. Yeah. Because so, this is going to this is there's going to be pressure to change this. Essentially, oh, yeah. what they said was that a sport pilot instructor could, teaches a sport pilot that dual time. Learning the basics, that 10 hours, can't count toward 10 hours of your private pilot training. Now, if you received your sport pilot training from a regular CFI who's added a sport aircraft endorsement, then it can count. Then it can count, yeah. But it's the same bloody syllabus. Yeah. It's the same practical test standard. So they're saying, well, if you've got one guy that taught it, you're cool, but the other guy, we don't trust him as much, but we're going to trust him enough to throw you out into the airspace with the same ticket that the CFI is teaching you for. Well, it's, it's, it's even, stupid. It's, it's even more cockeyed than that. First of all, it's the same airplane, okay? Yeah. Whether, whether it's a, um, a CFI-airplane or a CFI-SP doing the instruction, the, the, the sport pilot is flying the same airplane. That's right. Uh, Again, I should say also, um, there are a lot of legacy aircraft out there. We, we talked earlier about air knockers. The air knocker, the Aronka um, C3 or whatever it's called, um, is eligible to be operated by a sport pilot. Um, so, again, we're talking about an airplane that was designed X number of years ago, has been flying X number of, uh, or I should say Y number of pilots all those years, and um, the the instructor uh, instructing in that airplane, instructing a, stu- a sport pilot, uh, is has been until now there's really no choice for him not to be a CFI A. Now we have the CFI SP uh, uh, rating, and an instructor flying the same airplane with a sport pilot is is somehow lesser. I don't I don't get that at all. Well, I don't get that no, at it's all. Somehow it's like well. He, he learned an inferior skill compared to what the CFI would tell him. It's the same bloody stuff. Yeah. And, and if I read it correctly, there's just another weird loophole in here, which is that although – let's see if I've got this right. Your sport pilot CFI training hours in your logbook cannot be applied towards your private pilot. But when that sport pilot CFI signs you off to solo, that solo time can be applied. That somehow the sport yeah. pilot student as, soloing doesn't doesn't count as dual. I don't know. I mean, an instructor is an instructor is an instructor is an instructor. Well, and if you're flying the airplane, you're flying the airplane. Um, FAA is going to definitely go have going to have, have to go back to the uh, yeah. The, they're going to have, they're going to have to do something to fix this. So let's uh, fix this. I talked to a CFI who's working on getting his uh, uh, endorsement to teach for sport pilot. Okay. Uh, he's going to teach it in the same airplane that he teaches his private pilot students. And he brought up the point that a private pilot going for the instrument rating can have all that private pilot instruction time count. Right. Uh, 
it very doesn't good. require a CF double I to teach the private pilot. <laughs> very private good pilot point. syllabus. Oh yeah. So that he can then later on have that time count toward his instrument training. More moreover, um, I think it's it's true that if you got multi-engine instruction or seaplane instruction, whatever the instruction, um, um, if you got instruction from, uh, uh, let's, let's, let's use the multi-engine example, um, you can get instruction in multi-engine airplanes from a non-multi-engine instructor. Correct. That's not right. Um, that's, not, that's not right because uh, uh, instructors don't have, uh, I don't think, uh, multi-engine versus uh, single-engine, no, do they? Yeah. So it doesn't really matter. But um, it's it's who signs off the endorsement is is the punchline. Yeah, for the yeah. instrument label, for example, you can get all right? kinds of of uh, instrument instruction from hell. I can give an instrument instruction. I you know, you can log it because I'm a I can be a safety pilot. That's right. But um, uh, when it comes to uh, going for the rating, it has to be a double I who signs you off. This whole thing just doesn't doesn't sm- pass the smell. Well, test. it's just not consistent, and it's just them saying, "Oh, well, we." We may have intended it the other way, but this is the way we're going to interpret it now. And right. so that means EAA in particular and AOPA and mm-hmm. the Light yeah, Aircraft Manufacturers Association are now going to have to spend another year working with the FAA and the ASTM to correct what is a total fracking foobar of an interpretation. You people have no freaking common sense. <laughs> It's not like we've. This is the first time we've seen this from the FAA. Yeah. So, no, no matter of fact, I think it's a habit of theirs because I is. think that they need this stuff to keep the legal, the office of legal counsel, uh, justifying its staff level. I honestly do. Now, the good news here is that they did com- come out and say that there are some types of sport pilot time that will count towards your private pilot. So they have Probably. clarified some of it. They, you know, if you take your if you take your sport pilot training from a private pilot CFI, that that can count. Um, what else was there? The solo time Stupid apparently thing counts. Here is for a, pri- a, a CFI for fixed wing airplanes has to get an endorsement to teach sport pilot. Yeah. So that, so yeah, we were concerned awesome. that maybe none of it would count. That was the scary, you know, kind of doomsday scenario, and that's turned uh, out not you know, to be the it's case. It's still a stupid gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully they'll fix it. Hopefully they'll fix it. Oh, they'll, they'll fix it because there's too much rioting on this to yeah. let a bunch of stupid non-pilot JJDs screw it up. Okay. Well, and a lot of this, too, is... Um, you know, yeah, I'm not. I'm not suggesting that um, um, this was by design on anybody's part, but a lot of this too uh, could, in fact, be. Well, you know, we we really don't have um, uh, because of the way the regulations were written, and, and maybe someone was asleep at the switch, or you know, came in and, and a hangover that day, or something like that. I don't know, but didn't write the regs that way, or 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 hasn't been interpreted that way before. And here's the FAA saying, well, you know, if the way we read this and, and you know, applying uh, a strict uh, um, due diligence to this, we can't do this. We can't say, we can't give you the result you want us to give you. So they put this out there in the public knowing there's going to be a great big hue and cry and knowing that if they do this in this fashion, then eventually they will be forced to come up with the outcome they want all along and there will be a track record that will be cover for these bureaucrats 
and we can all move on and go do something else. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not saying that that's the case in this instance. I've certainly seen it in the past. Um, it may be the case in this instance. That would actually be perhaps the most benign interpretation. Yeah. Does the CFISP have to have a commercial license? I would think so, yeah. I would think so, yeah. And they're going to collect money to teach. I, I am kind of curious what... So so CFISP would be a stepping stone to being a full-blown CF. I, I guess we don't know the answer to that. but uh. Uh, I don't know if you can get a CFISP before you get a CFIA. I don't know. Well, I presume you must you be able to because that's the whole controversy here. They're saying that there's a there's a a, a, a yeah. subordinate CFI that doesn't have, you know, yeah, yeah, of course, all the signing privileges. Spent all their time in an LSA. Yeah. Um, so, anyways, moving on here. Um, so now to the very sad and tragic story here. Uh, the yeah. big, big, the big aviation story in the mass media this past week was the uh, midair collision of a, uh, a fixed-wing aircraft and a helicopter over the Hudson River in New York City over this last week. Uh, you know. We, we should talk about it a little bit. I'm not sure how much there's a talk about. Do, it, this just seems to have been just just bad luck, midair, not able to see. Yeah. They, they ran into each other. Do we have any indication of any systemic failure here, or is this just no, failure to really. see and avoid? One of my coworkers, not involved in aviation, but, but uh, nonetheless in the same office with me, uh, asked, you know, what are these little airplanes doing flying around? You know, da-da-da-da-da. It's like, look. You know, if if you go back and you look at this airspace and you go back and you look at the history of this airspace, um, this has been a relatively trouble-free uh, series of operations for decades. Um, I think the last uh, uh, mid-air was like in 83 or something like that, which is not to say that, you know, mid-airs are, are uh, not to be avoided. But... Um, um, we've, if you look at the carnage on the highways, uh, and you consider that you know one collision uh, every you know 25 years or something like that, uh, that's not such a bad record. First of all, it's not Sec a bad record at all. No. Sec secondly, um, it's way too soon to to uh, uh, decide what happened here. Or the NTSB is just now starting their investigation. We're we're still inside a week of this this tragedy happening. Um, but uh, you've got basically two aircraft that have, have taken off almost simultaneously from different uh, points. You've got good weather, which is always a, a factor. It is, it's, it's really counterintuitive, but most mid-air collisions happen in good weather. Um, you've got uh, Why? Because people aren't complex... being as cautious? Say again? Because people Complacent. aren't being as cautious? That's right. Well, they get complacent. Yeah. It's, hey, I can yeah, see. It's that's, clear. That's, I'm going to see something if it's in the way. That's part of it. That's part of it. And if you look at the statistics, um, most mid-air collisions happen within five miles of an airport. That's right. Yeah, well, okay. that, would, that would be... In, in good weather. And, and, of course, you know, there's a lot of coincidence factor there. Most automotive collisions happen in an intersection. Well, duh. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and within um, 25 so, miles of home. Know, yeah. Right. So, 25 uh, miles of home for, for cars. But, but um, you know, here's a very, very, very complex uh, uh, piece of airspace. Uh, if you if you look at um, and, and James, I'm sure you're aware of all this because you live up there. You pull out the the New York terminal uh, chart, terminal area chart, and you see a bunch of you know blue lines and stuff centered around Manhattan and, and the Hudson River and the East River and all this. And then you flip the sucker over, 
And what you've got is the New York helicopter chart. Okay? Mm-hmm. And you start looking at that, and there's all kinds of different routes. And you start reading the fine print and the boxes, and there's there's recommended altitudes. Everybody's you know suggested that they stay to the right side of the river, uh, no matter which direction they're going, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's it's way too early to know right now, um, but um, early reports say that the the collision occurred at 1,100 feet, uh, which is just below the the um, the tier of the class Bravo there over over uh, the Hudson River and in, into in New Jersey. Um, if in fact that's the case, the helicopter was way higher than it normally would have been for that airspace. The the recommendation for helicopter operations, and of course, all of this is Class E airspace. It's not even Delta. It's it's Class Echo. And um, what happens is the chart has various um, recommendations on it. They are only recommendations. They're not regulatory. But the the helicopters are supposed to be down around 500 feet. Yeah. Fixed wing can be anywhere from from you know five hundred to one up to up to eleven thousand eleven hundred nine hundred or eleven hundred ninety nine, but, but um, for, it, it appears that the helicopter was a lot higher than it than it normally would have been, which may have thrown off the, the fixed wing pilot. I don't know. No one knows right now. And we haven't heard yet whether the uh, the uh, Saratoga pilot might have been cleared to climb into the Bravo. Uh, on some kind of heading out somewhere. We don't know that yet. But for anybody that'd like to have some fun and cocktail hour conversations about this with somebody who thinks that, you know, the only solution to all these accidents uh, is a, you know, quote Jeb's number on how long it's been since we've had a midair over there. And take a look at a track of air traffic over the area and do a rough guess of how many safe, Accident-free, collision-free, you use the airplane again, everybody walked away from the landing. Flights have been through that corridor since the last time there was an accident of any kind. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands over the years that nothing ever happened. So why this is suddenly on everybody's radar screen as some kind of epidemic. Yeah. James, uh, James, you... You really need to get their heads out of the dark place and into the sunshine. <laughs> and I heard, I, heard, I heard some stuff from a, 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 a network reporter that I tend to respect, which is a dwindling pool by the week, go off on Sunday morning talk show about the need to exercise some control and some management under these uncontrolled airplanes that are flying along in here and risking everybody's lives with no rules and no regulations and nobody overseeing see, them. See, you're, he you're, didn't know his head or his facts from where his head was stuck. You, you, well, your problem here, Dave, is you're actually you know watching the Sunday morning news program. <laughs> yeah, that's right. No, no, I don't okay. watch. I don't watch this crap. I hear about it later, and then I go catch the the the, the uh-huh. Yeah, I have a question for James here. I have a question yeah. for James. Um, so this fixed wing aircraft took out, I believe, out of took off out of Teterboro, mm-hmm. uh, and was flying over the Hudson. You operate out of uh, Caldwell, I believe yes. it is, uh, which is just a few miles away from Teterboro. Yes. What's it like putting aside for whatever the issues or as- factors of this particular incident are? Mm-hmm. What's it like to fly in that airspace? Uh, it. It is a, a time that you definitely, it's thrilling. It is, uh, 
uh, it's kind of uh, just a religious experience, first of all. <laughs> all of Manhattan is laid out there. Yeah. It's like you can hold it in your, your, your palm. Uh, you are the, the king to, you know, of your realm or the queen. Uh, you can indeed fly circles around the Statue of Liberty and just sort of have to pinch yourself. Of course, you want or need to be alert for traffic as well. Uh, and I just want to correct it. It's actually 1,100 feet is the, is the top. Uh, oh, okay, is the, is the floor of, of the Bravo? Yeah. So if you are coming from uh, Caldwell, for example, and you are going to transit the corridor, and people who want to close this area, okay, so you want these planes. In other words, you want them to have to go around where all this descending traffic going into Newark, LaGuardia, Kennedy, that's where you want to disperse all these planes to, to be buzzing around and busting that airspace, instead of down a corridor where they can regulate themselves as we've been discussing they've been doing that well, successfully for a long time why why do they have to be over new york in, in the first place why can't they just go out to you know connecticut or something there you go why, why? <laughs> well you know so, we could all you know, just climb pennsylvania to climb straight up to 180 right. and just go over the top of all of it yeah james right. are the procedures are the vfr procedures very difficult to to master they they are not difficult but you need to be aware of what you're doing we the last time we discussed this airspace i believe it was regarding a couple of other pilots who were not prepared and didn't know what they were doing and they wound up uh on the other side of manhattan in the east river and came to a very ugly end oh, that was a cory lytle that was cory yes. lytle yeah. yes now the situation here there is a, a common frequency people are supposed to be on if i am transiting that area and it's often a much it's a spectacular flight to take people on and it's often a very convenient route if you are headed south uh, somewhere to southern New Jersey, something like that, uh, out of Caldwell, your first call is over to Teterboro Tower to tell them your position, request transiting their traffic area. Uh, typically, they grant that permission. They may tell you to stay a, a certain number of miles north of there. Uh, if you want to stay out of their airspace entirely, you would go and aim north of the Alpine Tower, which is a very visible landmark a, a large uh, a elect some sort of a transmitter that is on the the Hudson River north of the city uh, but assuming you're on with Teterboro as you come to the to the uh, exclusion area of the corridor they will hand you off to go down the corridor you should switch frequencies announce your position and at that point you'll be at about 1500 feet coming over Teterboro so you start descending so that you are under 1100 feet when you hit the corridor, you uh, typically will be north of the George Washington Bridge. You will see the spectacular palisades drop below you. You'll see the traffic going both directions on the GW Bridge as you take uh, a right turn and swing south and go between the spires ha uh, hugging more on the right side. You see Manhattan laid out before you on your left and the, the harbor and way down in the distance the Statue of Liberty. And you, you're supposed to be under 140 knots. You announce, you keep your eyes peeled, you keep on looking for things and uh, sit back also and enjoy the ride. And uh, I've can't say I've ever really had a close call there. Well, that was my uh, next the, question. Do you encounter much other VFR traffic along this corridor? Oh, yeah. You see them going in the other direction, certainly. Uh, you, you see helicopters. You can see traffic ahead. 
and you get responses. People, you know, announce where they are, and sometimes they will acknowledge you, but mostly you hear, you know, the, the, the helicopter will say we're, you know, 500 feet over the lady, you know, clockwise turn. Uh, so people are announcing their positions and, and watching out for one another. Hmm. Well, and, I want to thank my old buddy down in Florida, Jamie Beckett. Mm-hmm, uh, Jamie. He wrote a he wrote a really nice rebuttal to the uh, NBC uh, talent whose initials are something <laughs> like the name David Gregory. And, uh, uh, in a, Jamie's an active pilot. He's an author, published author, uh, and is actually a fairly fairly low key guy. And when he sent me an email, uh, in a, pointing out what he'd written on a blog and, and pointing me in the direction of the uh, video. Uh, well, let's just say that I knew it had to be something that agitated a guy that otherwise just doesn't get agitated all that much. And he was correct. And mm-hmm. NBC, uh, they need to bring back somebody that actually knows this stuff. Well, David Gregory doesn't let know much about anything. Sound like yeah. They used to have a guy named Bob Hager. Yeah. When I still worked inside the Beltway, Robert Hager knew what he knew and knew what he didn't know and knew how to find the answers to what he didn't know and knew enough to keep his feet out of his mouth and his head out of a dark orifice. That apparently is a lost skill at the network based on what I saw on the video. So uh, shame on them. They, they, they really, 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 really need to bring in some people that are smarter than their on-air talent. And since then, I've seen some stuff on CNBC and MSNBC where they actually brought in a retired airline pilot who's now an active CFI who actually put reality, facts, and meat on the bones of this story and explained how all these tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of flights have occurred without incident, how there's very well-published rules of the road, how people even blog about it, how it's a really intense piece of airspace. You really need to know how you're doing. But, you know, every 20, 25 years or so, wow, something's, you know, likely to go bump in the sky. Mm-hmm. That well, doesn't I, mean I w- the end of the world. I, ahead, I wish the ignorance was confined to some uh, talking heads because we've had legislators, elected officials here in New York, oh, who've yeah. gotten together and labeled this the Wild West yeah. of airspace. James, and James, ignorance is a contagious disease mm-hmm. spread by word of mouth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, uh, clearly there is ignorance aplenty, and it's uh, frightening to hear yeah. people spout off with this knee-jerk reaction without not only not- ignoring the facts, but ignoring reality. Like, right. you know, suddenly, you know... What has been going on? What do you think has been going on for years and years and years? Yeah. And again, you want to put these airplanes out around where you've got traffic, uh, airliners descending into local, uh, into you know these national and international airports. Not a good idea. No, the whole you thing's know, the whole thing's ludicrous. Know, as as it happens, go, Jeb, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, real quickly, as it happens, uh, while we've been talking about this, I got an email, uh, and there is video. Of the crash, of the actual collision. Really? 
I, I saw the still pictures. I haven't yeah, seen I haven't, video. There's there's still pictures. There's video. This is on the NewYorkDailyNews.com website, and I don't have the bandwidth right now to click on the video and talk to you guys. Yeah, but we'll, uh, we'll, we'll take a look we'll, at that. We'll try but, to put a link yeah. to this in the show. Well, the whole thing is the whole thing is a very terrible, terrible tragedy, and and hopefully that we will be able to learn something from it and also hopefully there won't be a lot of really bad consequences for the rest of us uh, like closing this corridor or something silly like that but uh, shout outs so um, let's see now first of all I you know you guys aren't the only ones who get to go on a rant I'm going to go on a little rant here and I love AOPA I am a, a devoted member of AOPA I love the things they do I, I've been a member forever I will be a member forever but they are annoying the crap out of me on one particular aspect and that is that they are spamming me left and right on email regarding the aviation e-brief newsletter that they send out okay and here's the deal all right I subscribe to this newsletter I like the newsletter I read it when it comes out daily or something like that all right and it's a nice little aviation newsletter all right I get get it already okay i also have more than one email in the world all right i have my personal email i have my podcast at uncontrolled airspace email i have jacket uncontrolled all right well they've discovered my jacket uncontrolled airspace email address and so they sent me a solicitation saying you need to subscribe to aviation ebrief okay now i don't mind that part all right that's fine you send me a thing and say and then i get to say no thank you I already get it, you know, but that's not what they did. What they did was they send me this thing to, to Jack and Uncontrolled Airspace. They say, well, you really ought to be getting it, and we're going to give it to you free for like a week and a half, all right? And and by then you'll have come to your senses and signed up. And I want to say, <laughs> no, thank you. I already get it, and they don't give me a chance to say no. So I've been getting it like every every day I get a second copy of eBrief that has a little header posted at the top of it that says, here's your free copy. Aren't you lucky? All right, you better subscribe. And I'm going, no, I already get it and uh and then so finally the the free the quote-unquote free you know version ran out like this today all right and they send me one last hopefully one last email all right where this one says says oh too bad your subscription ran out and I'm, oh crap i love aopa and, so, and, I love, and on monday they'll say you know we're not sure that you really realize what you were missing out. I know. Well, my real fear is that on Monday they're going to discover yet another one of the emails that what, I have. What, what, they're going to, what they're going to write you on Monday is they're going to say, you know, we realize you were out flying and you missed all of them. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. So just, we, just, just for you, we got a special offer this week and this week alone. We're going to give you another week's worth of free stuff. No. First prize is a free week. Second prize is two free weeks. Third prize is three free weeks. I and love so we need a new kind of place. environmental equivalent for this because you can't say to them, look at all the, the trees you're killing as you try to email me this yeah, stuff. Maybe yeah, you so. know, look at all the electricity. Do you realize that we could run a generator and heat three That's starving right. Well, there is that, you know. There's an unsubscribe link at the bottom of all those. Yeah, so that's all I'm asking AOPA. I love AOPA. I'm a member. I'm not going to stop being a member. But please give us an option. You know, it's like, and it's okay that you're trying to get new subscribers. That's fine, too. But you got to, like, give us an option of saying, no, thank you. That's all. Yeah. I'm done. I'm done. Treat, treat us like adults. Treat I'm us done. like adults. I'm done. Um, now, that would be refreshing. Who's got a shout-out? Yeah. Jeb? Uh, yeah, James Perkins. Uh, James, I don't know you. You don't know me. Uh, although, if you're a listener, I'd certainly like to hear about it. Um, you put together a video uh, of Oshkosh, uh, and it has gone viral in the aviation community. Uh, it's five minutes. Um, um, 
it's uh, got some great music in the background. It's got some great camera work. It's got some even better e- editing work on it. Uh, it's all over YouTube. It's all over Twitter. It's all over and now AvWeb. AvWeb uh, apparently cut a deal uh, with you, James, to uh, f- to front page your video. Uh, just some really, really excellent work. I understand you have not reached the age of 20 yet. Um, I didn't know um, that. Really? Yeah. The, it's, um, AvWeb uh, contacted him, and I, I, I came across this and, and basically you know wrote the powers that be and said, hire this guy. And uh, the, the response I got back was, hey, we're already talking to him. Uh, now, I don't know if they're going to hire him or not, uh, but they've certainly cut some kind of a deal to, to run this video on the front page of AvWeb. And as I say, it's gone viral uh, on uh, on uh, YouTube and, and uh, probably a lot of other aviation-related uh, uh, outlets. But uh, it was just a very, very well-done video. captures uh, better than a lot of, uh, shall we say, the more professional efforts. Uh, captures the flavor of Oshkosh this year. Um, and, um, you know, James, if you, if you want to stick with this, I think you've got a bright future and, uh, uh, hope you will stick with it because it's, it's very good work and we all enjoyed it. Yeah. Uh, If this is, if this is the one that I'm thinking of, we've got, it's, it's also on the homepage of uh, uncontrolled airspace and, uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I think it is the same video and, uh, it's excellent. um, yeah. Yeah, it's it's just truly good. It's, it's, this is the video that I'm going to go back to every couple yeah. months throughout the winter right. to uh, Right. It's it's as good as it gets uh for um what it is. Uh, yeah. it just doesn't get any better than this. That's right. So, uh, I commend uh James to to uh, our listeners and uh, certainly urge the listeners to seek out this video. He goes by a different name on uh, on YouTube. Uh, but his his um, his meat uh, space name is James Perkins, and uh, whoa, uh, you're really getting uh, into this stuff, aren't you? Huh? His meat oh, space I, I've, name. I've, huh? I've known that phrase for several <laughs> okay. years now. Right. Uh, while I'm at it, uh, because uh, I'm also I have AvWeb's homepage open, uh, and I have no idea when this uh, this episode will hit the streets. There is also video of the uh, um, Hudson River midair collision on uh, AvWeb's front page. As uh, okay. I speak, also. It's All the right. same video, apparently, that I mentioned a, a few moments ago. Okay. All right. We'll take a look at that. Um, other shout-outs. Dave? Jack, uh, Jeb just did mine. Yeah, I know. Dun, <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Beat you to it, huh? James, anybody you want to say hi to? Yeah, yeah. First of all, I'd like to uh, shout-out to the folks at uh, Plane and Pilot and Pilot Journal Magazines, who through whom I'm able to go out and uh, do the flying that uh, I described earlier in the show, and there will be articles and and web material on uh, American Champion, on Gauntlet Warbirds, and on the Blackhawk King Air Conversions. And also a shout-out, a little redundant, because I just saw him today, Craig Payton uh, lives up at Sky Acres, has a, a hangar home there, uh, a cinematographer flies in his Mooney and does a lot of stuff done for the Bahamas. If you've seen any of the EDM uh, video instructional materials, he does those. And he's got uh, BahamasAviator.com, which is a great resource for anybody thinking of flying the islands. And uh, he dropped by today. He was in the city. And it's so rare to see another pilot person in the city. So it was really great. And uh, shout out to him. Yeah. Um, I have one real quick one. Go ahead. I'm not going to identify the pilot because I'm not sure that he was ready for this to be talked about yet. But one of my close friends uh, that I keep track of on FlightAware.com, 
I noticed that I got a little blurb, a little email notifying me of a flight plan filed on his tail number today. And the point of origin and the point of destination were the same airports, which kind of raised an eyebrow for me. So I took a look at the filing under FlightAware and happened to notice that the uh, aircraft type associated with that tail number has changed. Uh Uh-oh. Mm-hmm. Uh-oh. And I'm going to be seeing him and talking to him. We, I think we're going to have dinner this weekend. But if he's listening, which would be an on-again, off-again thing with him, I just want to say congratulations on your new jet. Ooh. Mm. Ooh. All right, you're going to need to get that story I, so that I you can I tell us. I think I know who you're talking about. You yeah, need to, keep your mouth shut. You need to come back to us I, later, David, and fill us in on this story. All yeah, right. And, and I'm, look, cool. I'm looking forward to going to NBAA this year more than ever. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. Oh. Hey, it's definitely time to stick a fork in this one. We got to wrap this thing up. Uh, uh, James Winbrandt uh, is an author and an aviation journalist, and gets to ride a lot of cool airplanes. And uh, a musician and uh, a dentist writer—not a dentist, but a, a writer about dentists—and all kinds of other things. <laughs> James, it's always a thrill to have you on the podcast. We always appreciate great your... to be in the hangar. And uh, uh, stick a tooth in this when it's done. He said. You don't have. Uh, <laughs> you still don't. Have any web presence though no website huh we'll have to get you a website yeah okay dave higdon is an aviation photographer also an aviation journalist and the u.s editor for london's world aircraft sales magazine david where can people find you on the internet oh dave higdon.biz is where the pictures are avbuyer.com uh, aea.net aviationsafety.com uh or turn over a rock or google there you go And Jeb Burnside is an aviation journalist currently serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Jeb, where can people find you on the Internet? On the Internet? Normally they can find me on the bulletin board at the local post office. Mm -hmm. Yes, Uh, I know. Uh, on the internet, they can find me at uh, my day job, which is aviationsafetymagazine.com. Uh, personal website is jeburnside.com. And uh, uh, as perhaps I've intimated here in the last few minutes, uh, occasionally I pop up on AvWeb. So uh, I should be easy to find. And uh, if, if you can't find me, uh, uh, all those other methods on the internet, go back to the post office. <laughs> and I am Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. You can learn more about me and my work at jackhodgson.com or aroundthefield.net. We want to send out a big thanks to Jeff Ward for creating our excellent show notes on the website. That's ScoffreJet in the forums if you want to say hi. Also, a big thanks to uh, Roy Searle and Mike Morgan and to the many other listeners who have created the show opening disclaimer clips that we use. We're also very grateful for the financial support that we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 5 or $10 over the span of a year is a big help. And don't forget that you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the blog, you can view the forums, check out the wiki, the aviation movies list, and more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. Hey, David, what were you going to say? Live longer. Go fly, because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. That's right. That's enough talking. Let's go flying. I've heard that before somewhere. I don't remember where, but TTFM.
do, 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 James. We got 36 cents left on the meter here, so we got to wrap things up. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. <laughs> That's the way Skype works. That's the way, the way Skype works is oh, that you I pay. I've been there, done that. I'm, All right. I'm, I'm, and, uh, and I haven't put money in it forever because I only ever talk to people on Skype who are also on Skype. But people like talking to Paul Berezny and talking to uh, Klapmeyer and Stop, tonight talking. the time and get on with it. Talking about James. The meter's going down. I got 36 cents. We started with a buck 60, so we're, we're probably good. That's 18 right. minutes. Yeah. 